This is Jacobin Radio. I'm producer, director, and engineer Melissa Figueroa, sitting in for Susie Weissman. This week, we feature a conversation first featured on Truth Dig between Susie, Mark Cooper, and Pablo Opofom, featuring Mark Cooper's Dig on Chile with the great title Utopia Postponed. Taking a stab at Utopia is a good description of the dramatic political events in Chile in the recent period. Mark Cooper and Pablo Abufam integrate the legacy of the military coup 50 years ago with a discussion on the present challenges for the leftist government of Gabriel Boric. Just a year in power, the Boric presidency suffered a huge defeat in the May 7th election for a new constitutional council, signaling the probable death knell for a progressive constitution in Chile and the emergence of a powerful far right. Susie gets Mark and Pablo's account of how a political agenda that began with a focus on environmental, economic, and social justice got ensnared in debates about crime, immigration, and inflation. Stay tuned for this important conversation when our program returns in just a moment. Hi, I'm Zway Kaufman publisher and CEO of Truth Dig. Welcome to our event, Perspectives for Social Justice in Chile 50 Years After the Pinochet Coup, which is part of our investigative dig curated by Mark Cooper titled, Chile's Utopia Has Been Postponed. Now, Mark Cooper has been a writer and a journalist for more than 50 years, reporting on politics and culture from across the country and around the world. Mark has served on the faculty of USC's Annenberg School of Communications as a professor of journalism. And he's also illustrious past. He's been a staff writer for the Village Voice, LA Weekly, The Nation. He's appeared in scores of publications, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, The Los Angeles Times, on and on. And he's published three books, including the LA Times bestseller, Pinochet and Me, a Chilean anti-memoir. Now, inside this book, he documents his time spent in Chile in the early 1970s, where he wound up in the midst of the peaceful but sweeping Chilean revolution. And he was working at that time as a translator for then President Salvador Allende, who died in the 1973 military coup. Now, Mark's book chronicles that period. And we have as part of his dig an excerpt of his last days in Chile when he barely escaped with his life. He's returned many times since then, including earlier this year. He continues to contribute his expertise and insights to Truth Dig through his dig titled Chile's utopia has been postponed. And today's DIG event will be moderated by Susie Weissman, who is both political scientist and professor of politics at St. Mary's College. She's also a radio and podcast host for KPFK and Jacobin Magazine. And she has deep roots in Chile herself, which Mark will explain in his introduction. We're also thrilled to have on our panel 
Pablo Abafon Silva, who is speaking to us directly from Santiago, Chile. He's a professional translator. He's a political analyst and an activist. And he writes for the Spanish language edition of Jacobin Magazine. Now, all of our speakers today will discuss Chile's governments and they'll offer perspectives on possible outcomes for Chile's future. And we at Truth Dig would like to thank our panelists for sharing your rich personal histories and deep analysis. Mark, I'll hand this over to you to continue the introductions to this panel and to this event. And we thank all of you. Oh, thank you, Zwaid. And uh, thank you not only for such a wonderful introduction, thank you for hosting the event. And thank you for hosting this dig on Chile. I don't think we need to go into great detail with this audience about the crisis that American journalism and uh, not just American journalism face today. And especially in this country when it comes to reporting on the rest of the world. Sometimes Americans forget there's another world out there. I'm very pleased to be able to do this event today. Chile was a seminal event in my life. I was there originally 50 years ago, which is kind of a scary thought. I went as a youngster from Southern California, arrived in 1971 at age 20. And uh, within a year, I, circumstances were such that I became the translator for the president. I was there also at the time of the 1973 coup. And as Zoe said, in the dig on Truth Dig, you can find a uh, my account of my final eight days in Chile before I was able to escape the military dictatorship. But that's enough for now. We have a lot in front of us. I'm very pleased to be joined by Pablo Abufom. Hello, Pablo. Good to see you. Pablo is currently in Santiago, Chile. When I was there earlier this year, I interviewed lots of people about what was going on in Chile. And I have to say that I found my discussion with Pablo to be one of the most interesting, one of the most satisfying. He's a deeply engaging individual with a good grasp of what's going on in Chile. He's a political activist. Uh, he's the spokesman for a left-wing association, a left-wing group, which you can tell us about in a few more minutes, Pablo. He serves as the editor of uh, more than one political journal. And he's been an activist, certainly in the large 2019 social explosion that shook Chile to its roots. And then in the election early last year of Gabriel Boric, a millennial, I think at the time he was elected, he was 34, 35, youngest head of state in the world, a nominally left-wing government, made up of left-wing parties, but currently in a lot of trouble, which we're going to talk about. I'm also pleased to turn this over now to the moderator, and that's my uh, colleague and friend, Susie Weissman, who I've known for, what, 43 years, I think. Susie I met in uh, 1979 <laughs> when she moved to the United States with her exiled Chilean husband of the time who 
unfortunately uh, passed away at an early age. But her husband, Roberto, was a excellent uh, friend of mine. Sorry. He was a Chilean militant involved in both the Chilean Socialist Party and, and earlier extra-parliamentary uh, left-wing organizations, i.e. Uh, guerrilla organizations, before the advent of Allende. During the period of Allende, he was a supporter of the president, a member of the Socialist Party, arrested, detained, and tortured by the uh, military government before he was sent into exile. Susie is a, an accomplished professor of politics at St. Mary's in Northern California. She's the author of dozens of academic and popular articles. She's the biographer of the revolutionary Victor Serge. Uh, she sits on the editorial board of Critique and Against the Current, two journals of radical thought. And not only was Susie uh, for a long time married to a significant Chilean political actor. She also was deeply involved in the uh, democratic politics of Chilean exile during the dictatorship. Susie, it's all yours. Thank you, Mark. And hello to Pablo and to the audience. And wow, what an emotional introduction. So I think I'll just take it from there. And I want to welcome everyone to this Truth Dig discussion that features Mark Cooper's Dig on Chile, which has the great title, Utopia uh, Postponed, with a question mark. And I'd say that taking a stab at utopia is a very good description of the dramatic political events in Chile in the recent period, as well as, you have to say, the popular unity period, the years between 1970 and 1973. And today, both Mark Cooper and Pablo Abufon, who's in Chile, as already noted, will integrate, hopefully, the legacy of the military coup 50 years ago with a discussion on the present challenges for the leftist government of Gabriel Boric. Just a year in power, the Boric presidency recently, on May 7th, suffered a huge defeat in the election for a new constitutional council. And we're going to get their understanding of that defeat and the emergence of a powerful far right. So the events in Chile in the last year, as we will hear over and over again, I think, have been at turns hopeful and devastating. And Mark, who returned to Chile in January for the dig, and Pablo in Chile, uh, who participated in and has analyzed the massive social protests of October 19, are going to help us understand it. That protest, I'd just like to introduce for a second, we saw a million, more than a million people, 1.2 million, hitting the streets, and it sort of inaugurated or maybe even culminated a year of spectacular protests around the globe. But in Chile, it was ignited by a transit fare hike, and it quickly grew into this more generalized protest against what we could call neoliberal austerity. And it was popularized by a slogan, and that was also a title of one of Pablo's articles. It's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. And a key demand that emerged in that social protest movement was for a constituent assembly to create a new constitution to replace the reactionary Pinochet constitution, a process that had many ups and downs right up to the catastrophic election on May 7th 
for the new constitutional council, and that one handed a major victory to the far right. So I think all of that will help us frame the discussion, and we're going to get Mark and Pablo's take. And in the last part of today's live stream, we're going to take your your questions and hope that we can also answer them. So I was going to reintroduce both of our guests. I don't think we need to. We've had plenty of introductions, but I do want to do one thing before we discuss this, and that is to uh, once again remind you or call your attention to Mark Cooper's dig articles. And I like that it is called the dig, and I think Mark has called it an archaeological journalistic take. It has many different forms, but our intention today is to contextualize the Chilean present with the history of the last 50 years, maybe even the last 53 years. And the latest entry, as Wade said and Mark affirmed in Mark's ongoing dig is the Chronicle of a Death Postponed, which appeared online on May 16th. And it's a very moving account. I read it again last night of the day of the coup and the subsequent eight frantic days, dangerous days, as Mark sought escape from the emerging nightmare. And then I'll reiterate one more time that Mark then went in January this year back to Chile. He'd been there many times before, but he was gathering information for the dig and also marking the 50th anniversary this year of that ferocious coup d'etat that put an end to Salvador Allende's popular unity government. Much had happened, much had changed, but 2023 coincidentally marked uh, the the one-year anniversary of of Gabriel Boric's presidency. And as you'll see in uh, the first, I think, dig article, Mark began the dig full of questions about the new progressive agenda of Gabriel Boric. And we're going to begin with some of those same questions. So, Mark, let me put it to you. What was your expectation when you went to Chile in January? And were they met or what happened? Well, I will I will make this a very brief answer because I think that Pablo probably has a better grasp of why I was feeling the way I was. Uh, having followed, as you mentioned, in October of 2019, almost out of nowhere, a social explosion appeared in Chile where more than a million, I think the estimates were eventually maybe 4 million people uh, were into the streets at a given moment, spontaneously, not organized, no leaders, no politicians. And while there were many, many demands, some of them in Kohate, it seemed that at least from the reporting I was reading here, that the one thing that, united everybody was um, a rejection of what was called neoliberal, which meant basically the kind of savage capitalist dog-eat-dog system that exists in the Chilean economy. Uh, With rising amounts of people coming out of extreme poverty over the last 25 years, but also sharp inequality. I went there expecting, to answer your question briefly, I went there expecting after the election of Boric to see a lot of social agitation, a lot of people in movement, a lot of people working to uh, move on these reforms that had been proposed just months before. I had not realized until I got there that the defeat in September, which was four or five months earlier, of a proposed new constitution had battered the government and had depressed and demobilized its supporters. And I found 
a country where one of uh, President Boric's most enthusiastic supporters uh, said to me, right now, <laughs> we've got a hangover. We're in a hangover. So I'd like to have Pablo tell us about where all this began. You could begin Chilean history in many places, but I, I think you should begin in October of 2019, maybe the day before the social explosion. What happened and what did it feel like? Did anybody expect this coming? And give us some idea of what it was like so the expectations were so high. Hi, Mark. Hi, Susie. Thanks for the wonderful introduction. And, and also, I want to thank you both because being on the ground, but only in the present, is one way to, to access history, right? To access an understanding of what's going on in Chile or, or elsewhere. But you too have been in Chile and in other places in other times. So that's also a very relevant and privileged way to access history. So I think this is a great, great conversation because of that, that we can combine uh, perspectives. I just wanted to start with a spoiler alert, is that neoliberalism is not going to end in Chile. This is one of those slogans that was so popular during the revolt in October 2019 and in the next months that conveyed the idea that neoliberalism could be something that was imposed by force for, for decades and then just undone by the will of a, of a people in just a few weeks or months, right? So I think that's one thing that we have to take into account. I think that it's interesting to see that other slogan you were talking about, Susie, about it was not... 30 pesos, but 30 years, that referred to not the 30 pesos of the fair hike, but the 30 years of the, I would say, the civil and the de democratic administration of neoliberalism in Chile. Uh, that, was the, that was the 30 years of civilian government following exactly. the end of the dictatorship. Right? Exactly. And so, right. and can so, I just inter interject one thing for people listening? This is a great film about what happened during the plebiscite that brought the end to the unexpected end, let's call it, to the Pinochet dictatorship. That film is no. And part of the slogan was to bring the alegría or happiness because they be, they finished with the dictatorship. Civilian government came in, although democracy, in quotation marks, was restored. The economic program didn't change a lot. So back to you, Pablo. Sorry. Yeah. And not just... And that's one thing, because it's not just the economic program of the dictatorship that was kept in place. Also, some of the elements, the key elements of the very restricted access to political institutions, to political power by the people and not just the political elite. And so I think that's one of the sources of discontent in Chile that led to that revolt in 2019. The way that we had lived on a highly restricted and democracy that was not exactly a democracy because, I mean, when you only have a bipartisan uh, establishment, you can't speak really of a democracy. And, and of course, if those parties are not, any of them are representative, truly representative of the diversity and the complexity of the, of the people. So, so the Pablo, Pablo, given the, the frustrations that you described that built up over 30 years of ineffective uh, civilian government, really disappointing civilian government to the point where people really just 
lost faith and interest in it. Tell us what it felt like on those first days of the social explosion when everybody came into to the street. What was the expectation? I remember clearly the first days, even before the actual, the, the October 18 was the day that it all started. But the days before that, we saw that high school students were protesting the fair hike and they were occupying uh, subway stations and they were jumping the turnstile as a way to protest against the fair hike. Uh, even if it, this fair hike didn't affect them directly because students have a, a, a discount. A discount, right? So it was for their families and for the workers in general. So that's one thing that I remember that we were thinking, well, the students are not, this is a solidarity protest. This is a political protest, not just, it's not related to material needs only, right? But then I remember seeing on the, on TV and, the, and also on, in the streets, uh, not just high school students, but also regular folks joining in that protest and then chanting the people united will not be defeated. And I remember feeling at that time that something something was happening. It was not just a regular student protest. It was something else that was going on. And then yeah. on, on that Friday, 18th, the government, the, the local government decided to close the subway stations. And that meant that millions of people had to take the buses to go back to their places, to their homes after work. And that basically collapsed the city. And that collapse was the actual, the ignition of the protest because people felt that they, was th they were not going to take it anymore. The last straw. Yeah, exactly. They were not going to take it anymore. The, the government was basically laughing at them with this decision. And that led to confrontation with the police, which has mm -hmm. always been highly repressive and violent in Chile. So we saw, and I'm going to refer to that later, we saw uh, uh, systematic violations of human rights during the, that revolt, but we had seen that before. It was not the first time. So, And also what has been happening for 30 years, more than 30 years, in Mapuche territory, in indigenous territory in the South, mm -hmm. now we were seeing that in urban centers. And that's I think that's also very important. Because for the first time, we were seeing the, the crudeness, the cruelty of the police state that we have in some places in Chile applied on the general population. And one thing I just want to have you kind of go over, because you're describing, Pablo, that huge sort of energy of that movement and the that's it. That's the colmo. They, they had, that's enough. We can't take any more. And then the Piñera government mobilized the Caribineros, which, you know, back in the popular unity period were militarized police and really ominous. And to have them back now, you know, to crush another huge social movement. No, was they, just, they never they never went away. No, but they hadn't been used in the same way as they came in there. And it, I think for somebody watching from outside, then seeing how they were systematically shooting rubber bullets into the eyes of protester blinding, blinding something like 300 of them. 200. And it was so unbelievable. And yet it just it, each step ignited the protest more point I'd love Pablo to bring into it is like who was there on the streets you talked about young people but we also saw a really strong women's movement in the leadership and it seemed to me like this was qualitatively different well it it definitely was the the political establishment always said that they didn't see it coming 
But that was, uh, was just a typical blindness of the political establishment regarding the actual crisis on the ground because we had seen social movements and social uh, unrest for decades now. I mean, in 20, uh, 2006, the high school movement, the students, in 2011, another yeah. huge university. University, university school students occupying all colleges uh, across the, the country. And then in 2016, we saw a huge mobilization for a new pension system. And, and then in 2018, and, and, and since 2018, the feminist movement became the first and the most important force, the most dynamic force in the social movements in Chile. It, it remains so with huge marches in the March 8th, uh, the International Women's Day, and a movement that called for a general strike, a feminist general strike. So it's not just the women's movement calling for a gender agenda or gender reforms, but also understanding that the whole working class can be led by a women's movement that is more radical than what we had seen. Uh, Pablo, so let me ask, Susie, if you allow me to ask Pablo a question. I'm going to intervene as a journalist for a moment just to provide some narrative so we get to the next uh, mm. part, which is, and correct me in my, in, my, in my characterization if I'm wrong, Pablo, which is that the explosion in October of 2019... Uh, looked like a peaceful general uprising of the Chilean population. And I think that any rational objective observer would say that whatever that looked like, it certainly looked like possible overthrow of the government, possible revolution, huge social change. That went from October and then ended abruptly in March with the imposition of the pandemic rules, which from my perspective seemed quite convenient to the government because it allowed them to shut down everything. And you'll tell me if that's correct. But then we have this strange period of quiet in Chile because of the pandemic. And then in 2022, the beginning of last year, we have an election a two-round election. Uh, the second round is won by a, a left-wing alliance farther to the left of the previous left-wing administrations that had uh, governed during the post-Pinochet period. A left-wing administration led by this former student leader, Boric, who was quite critical of the previous 30 years. And they came in and said... <laughs> This is the fruit of the labor of 2019. And now we're going to write it. We have a committee that was elected quite democratically to a big commission to write a constitution. The constitution came back for approval in September, six months into the new government. And it was defeated by a two to one margin, <laughs> which... I think a lot of people on your side of the political spectrum, on the left side, they thought it might get defeated, but they didn't think it was going to get defeated by a two-to-one margin. Without going into a lot of details that Americans wouldn't understand, what happened between 2019 
and September 2022, where the situation seemed to invert. And then we had a confirmation of that last week when the right wing won Mm. uh, the first majority on a new committee to try again to write a new constitution. I want to come in just to add to that question because you've framed it very, very well, Mark. And that is like how crazy it is to think about how the pandemic was good for Pineda. The pandemic was good for the right. And also just to reiterate coming out of the protest movement that it was surprising enough that they won a demand or it was acceded to them that they're going to get a constitutional convention and finally get to replace that constitution. And it kind of defines everything that followed that you've just framed. So yeah. uh, I guess I'll just, you know, reiterate we, it for Papo and to say what happened to that energy. We should mention just parenthetically that the old constitution, the constitution still in effect was yeah. in a sense imposed in a phony election by Pinochet in 1980. <laughs> it's been modified a lot by the succeeding civilian governments, but still, it still allows the private sector basically to take care of social services in Chile. And that's the real problem. Yeah. What's the, so what happened, Pablo? What, why (laughs) try, try, I'm going to ask you to try and do that in five or six minutes. How did, how did things go from A to B to B to A? I'll try to name four things and then try to develop some of them. Okay. One is that, the popular revolt of October 2019, in that that lasted uh, to up to March, right. actually, uh, the last big protest that we had was uh, on on March 8 that that year 2020. That revolt was not a revolution. That's one thing, because uh, revolution is not just when people go out to the streets massively, unarmed with no organizational framework to to take that into the next level with a, a political crisis that is deep enough to make the, the regime fall or, or an economic crisis that would make people choose quickly for another political leadership. And so it's more the expression of anger of decades of an unfulfilled promise of welfare and well-being, and and definitely because of a of a political elite that's completely disconnected from the actual reality of the people, the working right. people right. in Chile. So, so it it felt more like a the fact that it, it was a constitutional change. One of the main demands people were talking and chanting three things: it was, they wanted Piñera out. They wanted to for Pineda to resign. The right wing president at the time, because he declared the war on us. He said he literally said that night we were facing a a war with a dangerous enemy uh, that was was not going to respect anything or anyone. He was like a Pineda is like a comic book oligarch, plutocrat. Yeah, 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 plutocrat. Yeah, yes. And he declared a state of emergency curfew in, in several cities. And so for the first time, we saw the military taking to the streets and being in charge of public order. And that's that's one thing that we hadn't seen since the dictatorship. So wounds were reopened 
It was the government that promoted that radicalization against the, the government itself. And then the second thing is that, as I mentioned, the, there's no really a political force in the left that it's not a progressive group like Frente Amplio, like Boric's formation, that it's critical, that was critical of the concertación governments, of the civilian administration of the post-dictatorship years. Previous 30 uh, years. But, yeah, but, it, but that was willing to make an alliance with them as soon as they got into, they got elected in, in December 2021. And so social movements are not enough. And there's no political party that represents the actual working people in Chile. That's the problem. The Communist Party is the closest you have, but they are also embarked in a pro in a program, in a project of uniting with the, the progressive groups to, to get into government and, and the political institutions. Then we have the pandemic lockdown, which the pandemic crisis and the lockdown, which definitely shifted the, the issues, the, the concerns of the people from social and political issues to individual issues of survival. I think that's that's key. That's That may be the most important element that sort of demobilized the, the massive energy and kept the only the really politicized and, and socially active people still organized and trying to confront the, to, to help people solve the like problems of healthcare and food shortages and all that. So, It was not a complete demobilization. It was that the massive, the people uh, trying to, to answer your question also, Susie, the people who participated in the revolt was people coming from all walks of life. You saw people that were just leaving their offices in a call center or something and joining the protests and fighting the cops in the streets. And then you saw kids that were living in social services institutions, institutionalized people, kids, that were also joining the protest because they feel that their life doesn't mean anything in this system, and so they need to change things. You saw political groups, social movements, unions, and also, for me, that was very interesting, older people who had been sort of waiting for a new moment to come back to the struggle. It was an intergenerational movement also. And just to, to end this part, the, four, the fourth element, I think, is Boric's government. He has not fulfilled the promise of being a leftist, not even a progressive government. And it was sort of expected from him because he hasn't been, a, he, Boric has never been a radical. Within the left, he's always been a more moderate uh, character. But they joined forces with the Communist Party and, and they won by themselves. But then between they were elected in December and they formed their cabinet, In the beginnings of 2022, they made an alliance with the sectors of the Concertación, the old neoliberal parties, and that basically shut down at least half of their program in terms of, of, of their platform in terms of, for instance, the approval of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Treaty, the DPP, or I don't know how you say it in, in, in English. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They continue to militarize indigenous territory in the south and also the, the northern border uh, in terms of containing the, the massive migration from other countries, especially coming from the Venezuelan uh, population. They also have approved 
big, huge uh, projects for mining and uh, electrical and like power plants and all that. So basically I have been, I don't want to see, but there's a feeling of deception by I, I, a lot of people in their own base, right? I so will, they just, just to, to end this part, they joined forces with a political group that it's more to the right, that was always, had been always opposed to their own platform in order to make it viable, to make it possible to actually implement those changes. But that's like an impossible situation. The impression that I got when I was in Chile was that apart from whatever the political failures were of individuals and of groups, there was kind of a cosmic, if you will, kind of a cosmic irony to this situation, really interrupted by the pandemic. I think if you could have removed the pandemic from this mm -hmm. historic sequence, things might have gone differently, though I, I'm not so sure. The question that I have now is that when I was there, <laughs> I turned on the television the first morning and I thought I was going to fall out of bed. <laughs> uh, the the All of the networks, including the state television, which usually is pretty pro-government, were all running these, uh, uh, excuse my language, they were hysterical reports about violent crime. Now, violent crime exists in Chile, it always has. It's gotten worse recently with uh, the economic situation, the pandemic, and there's also been a great influx of immigrants, mostly from Venezuela, who get blamed for the violent crime properly or improperly. Uh, is that really the main issue now in Chile? I mean, did all, all of this talk in 2019 and even during the campaign of how you're going to change Chile and make it a more democratic and a more just place, that's now been replaced by discussion of how many, how many guns you're going to give the police? Well, I want to come in there just for a second, um, Mark and Pablo, and just say, you know, to amplify this transition that Mark just began, which is, you know, after going through in a brief way the steps the ups and the downs of this last period where you get this huge social movement, then you have the pandemic, and then you have these, you know, historic ups and downs over what to do about the Constitution. And I want uh, both Mark and Pablo to talk about what actually happened uh, on May 7th, because that's kind of, I think, last uh, week, probably the death knell for any progressive constitution. And it raises lots of questions about whether or not it should ever have been put to a vote. But but Mark also raised, and I think Pablo should take it up, uh, the question of how a political agenda, you know, that began with a focus on gender parity, environmental rights, economic and social justice, <laughs> could become ensnared in this debate, as Mark said, about crime, immigration, huge for Chile, that was Always, we should remember, Chile is this long, skinny country that has the Pacific Ocean on one side and the Andes on the other, and so it was yeah. very insular. Uh, I should and, just add that. Uh, and just one last thing, and just before you add that, Mark, is that the discussions today about immigration, inflation, and all of that seem so parallel to what we're seeing well, here. Well, that's what I say, different. just for our audience to know, unlike the United States, uh, Chile has a, a large array of center-left and leftist political organizations and parties, whatever their effectiveness are, they exist. And depending how you cut the deck, they represent 
35, 40, 40, maybe percent or more, conceivably half or more of the population. But the right wing is also very strong in Chile and it's organic. And it has, Chile has the largest organic right wing in Latin America. And what I wanted to m- let our audience know so Pablo can, can, can explain this with even more clarity is that right now, if you go to Chile today on this date and you open the mainstream newspapers or you open the uh, televisions, which are owned primarily by the right wing, it sounds like you're listening to Fox television. It really does. I mean, it's really all about crime, immigrants, inflation, and then sort of a Satanization of the president, Boric, who is held responsible for everything. The same way Biden, you know, if a star falls from the sky tomorrow, it'll be, you know, Obama's fault or Biden's fault, or in this case, Boric's fault. So I just want to know, is that, did I get that wrong? Or <laughs> or is that really what is the primary preoccupation of many Chileans right now is crime and yeah. security? Well, as always, it's, it's hard to say for sure whether that's the main concerns of the people before they got that in the media. <laughs> But right. uh, right. it, it's the same people who make the polls that make the some of the, the media. So I think that it definitely, as I was saying before, the, the pandemic shifted the concerns toward individual or family survival. survival. And it's not just economic survival. It's also survival in the sense of not being mugged in the streets or being able to have your business and not being robbed there or, or attacked by, I don't know, or being involved in, in the midst of a protest and then getting, I don't know, shut down by protesters and all that. So there was a sort of like a retreat toward issues of safety, security, public order, and more immediate needs in a country that has sort of like organized itself around fulfilling those needs only individually through the private sector. So that's that mix of individualistic uh, mindset and, and concerns and also a social system that is organized to to solve those problems only through the private system. You began this discussion today, Pablo, by saying neoliberalism is not going to die in Chile, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Spinning off of that, and I'm curious in your response, uh, I had a couple of people, a couple of analysts in Chile use the same phrase, and what they said was, and I know this is something that you think about a lot, that the neoliberal system, which we think of as an economic system, is not just an economic system. It's a way of life. And that there were a lot of people that I spoke to who said the sort of semi-socialist, if you will, the collectivist appeal that's made on social reform, for example, a more democratic tax system, a more democratic pension system, etc., clashed with to some degree, an individualistic mentality that has mm-hmm. been fomented over the last 50 years. I had one 
political analyst who I don't agree with very much, but he basically said, hey, the system, the model worked. The model worked. The people bought the model. Now, I think that's an oversimplification. But to what degree has the shift in public consciousness over the last 50 years? And I think that includes the legacy of Pinochet. How has that affected this? Can I add to your question, Mark, just a little bit, just to bring it back also to these votes that we've seen over the last year where you had expectations rise and then fall? And this ties into the parallels that we're seeing elsewhere in the U.S. for sure, but also other countries where you have the right rise of a populist right and you have concerns about immigration and and also just, you know, Venezuelans. I listened to a show the other day that said that the crisis at the southern border of the United States is mostly Venezuelans trying to get into this country. And so they've become a boogeyman, I guess, in a way. And, and, and I think that, you know, this ties into Mark's broader question, but something that makes Chile very different than the United States, even though it's polarized like it is here, the polarization is of a different degree so that the left in Chile is a left, you know, much more so than here and has been. That's perhaps part of the legacy of the last 50 years and the three years before that. Um, and some of the hopes that would allow a 36-year-old uh, socialist president to come to power again. But then the defeats. And I think, Pablo, when you talk about that shift, one thing that is very, very different and Americans might want to know about is that even in the vote for last constitutional council that took place on May 7th, 20 percent of voters nullified their votes or voted new low. And this is something we don't get a, <laughs> we don't get to do in the U.S., I guess, other than abstain. But I'd love to hear your take on what that was, that new low vote. Um, I see already people are questioning what was the role of the uh, media in promoting this sort of agenda. And uh, are they at fault? And who were these people? And I'd like to add to that question the newer thing in Chile where you have mandatory voting. And does that mean that people who don't care at all come in and just do NULO or something like that to destroy it and express their dissatisfaction with having to uh, express their politics through a vote? Yeah, so that's one difference between the votes for the first referendum to change the constitution, the election of representatives for the, the constitutional convention, the first draft with independence, social movements, and with a total minority of the right wing in the, in the composition of that convention, which is the opposite from now, which now the right wing has the majority of the seats and also is led by the far right. The extreme the, right. The yeah. extreme right that it's the Pinochet nostalgics. And so the first votes was with a system of voluntary vote. You were automatically part of the system, but you could choose not to vote. Mm -hmm. And that, that was in place since 2012 that we had that kind of vote. But then for the referendum, the second referendum, when we lost, that was the first time we got that you were automatically in the system, but you were also forced to vote. I mean, you had to vote or you would get a fine. And so that means that we had four million new voters which we didn't know anything about, Mo probably people who are not involved in politics or social movements of any kind, not in the right wing or the left wing. And that means that 
we we actually saw what was going on with the people in this moment of shifting concerns, right? Right. right. And what we saw was that for the second referendum, we saw that 62% of the people voted for the rechazo, that they, they didn't want this new the draft of this new constitution, and a 38 that voted for the apruebo to, to uh, accept it. the new constitution, yeah, to approve it. And, I mean, of course, that's, as you were saying, Mark, that's two to one, but it's all, it's almost like five million people decided to approve that new constitution. That's a lot in terms of, yeah. like, in a country of 19 million people, that's a lot. Yeah. And then in the rechazo, you would see, like, a very, it was not a unified homogenous rechazo. You saw people from different walks of life, people who were not involved in politics, people who were not even voting for or against a constitution, but they were voting against being forced to vote. They were voting against mm -hmm. Modic, who hadn't done a, a great job because they didn't get enough financial aid during the pandemic. So the rechazo vote was a very diverse vote, uh, whereas the apruebo was more how much... I would say more unified in a way that it's uh, people who are actually supporting a change. And I think that that's interesting that we saw that change. And this happened again with the, with the election of the representatives for the new process. But in this case, th there has always been a sector of the left and even the right that called for abstention in all the process, the electoral processes. But now we saw that a lot of the people who were mobilized by the revolt that were involved directly in the constitutional convention, that were that worked even for Boric's campaign, now we're deciding to not just not, not believe in this process and vote against it through a null vote, a nullified vote, which means that you mark two or more choices. Right. There was, just not to confuse people, there was speculation before the vote in September to approve the new constitution, which didn't get approved. <laughs> There was speculation before that, that the opposition to it was coming mostly from the right or from conservatives, generally speaking. Now there seems to be a sensation that as we move into a new process where, without going into the complicated detail of how it's done, a new constitution theoretically will be written this year and will be put up again for a vote at the end of the year in December, there's speculation now that it's the left that's going to block a new constitution. Does yeah. that sound something realistic to you? I think it sounds realistic if you see that right now. The, I mean, the dilemma we're confronting now is that we have a right-wing constitution, that we've had for, for 43 years now, basically uh, that allows very restricted role to the public sector to have uh, uh, public services, and then a, a very restricted role for the state and the economy in general, uh, and also a very restricted democracy. So no, no political, no actual political representation or political rights for several groups in society. But we have a constitutional process that will be drafted by a group of representatives, mostly in the right, that not just, they don't want to change the constitution. The, the group that was elected with 20, 23 
seats for this council, they opposed not just changing the constitution, they opposed this new process. And right. they won most of the seats. They have 23 so, out of 50, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, so that means that they want they they want to constitutionalize some setbacks in terms of social yeah. rights, human rights. They completely oppose any progressive perspective in terms of uh, human rights or cultural rights. By the, but the, they they also oppose a role for the, uh, the the state in the economy. So that means that we'll probably have a worse constitution. So for right. that, right, like right now. Like keeping this constitution would be a, a better choice. Wow. Accepting the new one. It's and, sad. And, I'm uh, laughing, but it's. I just want to yeah. post this point saying that one of the problems is that the left wing has been uh, orienting itself with the idea, the slogan of ending the constitution of Pinochet, ending the constitution, the Pinochet constitution. And that's an error because it's not about the fact that it was done in the dictatorship, it's, it's the fact that it has a highly neoliberal highly restricted democracy, that it gives a lot of power to, to the political elite and also the armed forces. So the issue is not about having a constitution that is signed by someone else. So we can say, well, this is Boric's constitution or it was done in democracy. The, the issue is what's the content of the constitution? And so yeah. I the constitution is not the worst case scenario right now. I want to come in because, you know, we've clearly Chilean politics have been dominated over the last two years, I'd say, or more by this question of the Constitution. And there's so much more. Of course, we're not going to have time to go into it. But one thing the listeners uh, should know is that Chilean presidents serve one term. Then it goes to somebody else. They can come back and serve another term, but it has to sort of alternate. And so right now, it looks like Chile's, you know, if, if we put it into the context of historic ups and downs, that it's in a down cycle. But there's an election coming up in 2025. So I'd like to hear from Pablo, but also Mark, your views about what, you know, what you see happening then and of course, I hate asking people to look into the crystal ball, but there's so much out there that will help guide your answer. I, I, I'm I'm going to answer first because I'll probably make a mistake, <laughs> and that way Pablo can correct it because <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I can only speculate uh, with some uh, basis of knowledge, but not as much as Pablo has. I suspect that uh, whatever happens. The 2025 election is going to be cast as this monumental battle for the immediate future of Chile going right or left. The extreme right is now ascendant within the right. The right sort of has two currents within it. What used to be the extreme right, from my perspective, now is considered to be the moderate right. And now there's a very extreme right. I, I loved your characterization of them, Pablo, as uh, what you call them is Pinochet nostalgists, right? <laughs> these are these are Pinochetistas. These are people who model themselves somewhat over Pinochet and somewhat about Donald Trump. Actually, yeah. uh, this is the rising force in Chile. So my guess is. And this is where I'm interested in your view, Pablo, is that as the friction within the right increases and as the extreme right 
led by this fellow, Jose Cast, if it becomes dominant, and if Cast becomes the candidate of the right wing, uh, I suspect that's the only hope that the left has. <laughs> that the left can only win again in 2025 because of negative partisanship, as we call it in the United States. Not so much people voting for whoever the left-wing candidate is, but voting against the scary figure of Jose Cast. Or am I being naive and people are going to just rally to Cast as the great savior? Or you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course I don't know, but I think that there's, there's... There's a there's a lot of truth to what you're you're saying is that there doesn't seem to be a, a clear alternative, but not just for the left, but also for the right. So I don't think that people are going towards the far right because they have a, a real plan to solve the crisis. This is the thing that Chile, where it was opened in October 2019, was the the evidence that. The Chilean state as a project, as a national state, is in a deep, deep crisis, political crisis, economic crisis. There's no way forward with following the same guidelines in terms of economic policy, in terms of international trade, in terms of the the place of Chilean political community in the regional community of Latin America. So feels like Chile is undergoing a deep transformation and no one has a, a, a real project for it. So it's not just the left or the progressive it's uh, Chile. sector. It's Chile. So the right wing doesn't have an alternative to solve this crisis. The, the thing with Cast and the Republicanos is that they are part of the elite. They are not a populist right. They are not for mm. protectionism. They are just for neoliberal deepening of the economy. Right authoritarian repression of any insurgents and Christian conservative values. So that's not going to solve the problem. So I think that probably the right wing is going to win the next election, led by whoever manages to capitalize the next three years. But the thing is that that's not going to last for long because the pendulum is going both ways very quickly and, and quicker and quicker. All right, I want to now welcome the uh, viewers and listeners to ask their questions. We have several that we've actually already gone over in some ways, but uh, the most recent one was from Anthony Raul, um, who we know, and he uh, says the Republicanos will probably want to head a successful new constitutional effort because they're looking at cast winning the 2025 presidential election. That's something that you just talked about, Pablo, and I see that we have it as a banner here. So the question is, will they compromise on a few issues? Good, good question. And I, both of you can you know, take your stab at that. I think that's an excellent question. And we don't know yet because uh, there's, a, there's a sort of like a debate within the right in general, but also within the Republicanos as regarding what what they should do. Should they behave responsibly? And, and this is something that even Boric has called them to do. They cannot make the same mistakes we made during the, the Constitutional Convention. And that means not being extreme and being open to dialogue and to compromise on, on some of the issues. I think that that's a possibility. 
that they will see the Constitutional Council as a as an opportunity to galvanize their base and mobilize their own forces, but not in a way that goes against the idea of winning the objective, the goal of winning the election. But the, it can also happen that they definitely try to stabilize their own base and have the chance to, in a longer term, to uh, have the leadership of the right wing. We'll see. Uh, there was, uh, uh, Susan, let me just briefly yeah, answer go, go another, right another question that came in, just a quick answer, which was uh, the CIA involvement during the coup, etc. cetera. Uh, we're not going to talk about that today, but if you stay tuned to the truth dig dig that I'm doing, uh, in the next couple of weeks, I'm putting up, I believe, what is the definitive interview on exactly what the CIA did and did not do in Chile, down to every detail. So stay tuned to Truth Take. Susie, go ahead. No, I'm glad you raised that. I was also going to postpone that question, knowing that you were going to publish that interview, but also I didn't want to change the conversation so much to one of the omnipotent yeah. U.S., you know, and, and yeah. its interventions around the globe. Um, because there's domestically, as we're seeing, a real division in Chilean society. We saw it at the time of the coup. And depending on what side of the political divide you're on, you know, the next 50 years were dashed hopes or, you know, I guess exultant, um, you know, victory for, for the far right. You know, Mark, I was going to ask you earlier on about after spending a month in Chile and talking to people, including Pablo, what you were surprised by or not surprised by in Chile. And this really ties into it because, you know, as you know, I'm one who lives on hope. And I think, you know, I was so buoyed by the election, first by this concentration on a people's constitution and then uh, by the election of Boric and was hoping for, you know, a radically different, you know, sort of well, scenario than we saw in the last 50 years. Well, well- well, one one thing in this, uh, I see there's a question about this, so I will phrase it. I'll yeah. sort of answer what you said, then I'll phrase this as a question to Pablo. Our friend, uh, Peter Cornblue, and he is a friend. Peter is, uh, without question, the, no, how would I say it? The most uh, skilled and significant researcher in the world, probably, on the role of the United States and the CIA in uh, its involvement in Chile. And we'll be hearing from Peter. I'll be interviewing Peter uh, for the next part of the dig next month. So stay tuned to Truth Dig. But I like his question. And he, he asked, what would be the best use of the 50th anniversary this coming September to improve this situation? Uh, is there steps that the government can take to sort of, if you will, I don't mean it in a flip way, to capitalize or cash in on mm. the positive sentiments that still exist within vast parts of the population about the popular unity uh, and the rejection of the dictatorship. Is that going to have much of an impact, you think, on the 2025 election when this stuff happens in September? It's, uh, I have to say that it's, it's sad and tragic that the narrative that the government has been putting out in the media with regard to the, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary, doesn't mention the word dictatorship once. Mm. And it talks about 
the terrible day as if this past 50 years, it's only about one day and not 17 years of a dictatorship. Right. It talks about the how democracy bro was broken in Chile, and it was it's not clear who broke it. Was it Allende? Was it the popular unity with its radical program? Or was it uh, the coup by the military? Or was it Elwin? Exactly. So, so, so I think that this is, this is highly problematic, that the, the official narrative of the university has been prepared by sectors of the, mo I would say, the most conservative sectors of the center-left right now. And I think that's that's dramatic because it, it and it's also joined by this support to the the police forces. I mean, they just approved the uh, 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 bill that allows the cops to basically stand their ground, as you would say in the, the U.S., is if the cops feel threatened by someone. So they oh. have been sh shooting people in the streets every week. I mean, what's the meaning of that? That raises a, another issue about 50 years, because, of course, one of the great legacies of the Pinochet dictatorship has been the, its horrific record on human rights. And the thousands that were, 3,000 or more who were killed in Chile disappeared, uh, maybe half of them, tens of thousands tortured, exiled. I was struck... When I was in Chile, the last couple of interviews I did were about human rights today and the fact that there are, and you can correct me, Pablo, there's something like a thousand or 1,500 complaints still unprocessed about what the police did in October 2019, let alone over the previous 30 or 50 years that have gone swept under the rug. Now we have all this pro-police legislation that happened in the last two weeks because I believe two or three police officers were killed on the job and it created a big to-do. Uh, how sig I mean, is this... This to me seems terribly significant because it seemed terribly significant to me that the Chilean police were never reformed. Now, not only they have not been reformed, they're being reinforced. Unless I'm reading this wrong, they am are. I reading it? Huh? No, no, no. They, they, they are reinforced now, and and this new law not just allows cops to to shoot people if they feel threatened, but since it's uh. It's a law that sort of benefits people who were indicted before. This is going to leave and has already ha has this effect of leaving cops that were condemned by, that were indicted and condemned by, uh, by human rights violation free of, free of their, their previous right. uh, counts uh, and charges. So this is tragic. I mean, it means that we are commemorating the 50, 50th anniversary of the coup with more impunity for present violations, not just in the past. Uh, right, I, think I, that, I think that, for instance, one thing that the Boric government could do is try to open the secret, the, the secret archives, the, the documents that have been kept secret for so long. Uh, it would be yes. for the, the armed forces to reveal the locations of people who were, who were killed. This is well, something the, that they could do just by executive power. Well, I think we, we should mention that I think President Boric has announced, don't know what he'll do, but he's announced twice now 
that his government will investigate and clarify every single disappearance. Good luck. Uh, but, but at the same time, the vice secretary of human rights, that was she, she who was in the original cabinet, she was a ex, a former prisoner in right. torture, right. and she was taken out of the cabinet. She right. was fired after the referendum, right. giving place to the statues of the of the neoliberal party. So there's so many mixed signals that it's yeah. so it's confusing. Like yeah. being in Chile right now, it's very confusing. <laughs> But it's also part of this ongoing up and down, I would say, too, yep. where you have yep. these two forces fighting each other. And even over something as important, as you said, as the 50th anniversary, how ironic that, you know, let's say the Socialist Party or the Concertación wants to moderate it, maybe fearful that energy that you described in October 2019 that was derailed by the pandemic, those demands and grievances have not been met, so it could easily explode again. So it's sort of like it seems to me like an attempt to control all of this through the official uh, recognition or commemoration of the coup. And it takes us to, I think, William Edelman's question, uh, which was, he asks you, Pablo, if you can comment on outsider ad, outside advisor involvement and business interests with respect to natural resources. I think we should extend it to even more than that and even look at, you know, how that went wrong. Uh, in the uh, in the uh, plebiscite over whether or not Pinochet would be president for life, the campaign using let's call it American consultants to frame a campaign. Uh, but now, how do you see it? And this question was raised earlier by someone else too about what was the role of the media in this last year to change the conversation. Yeah, I think it's interesting that. When when I talk to people in the U.S. or but especially in the U.S., they're very interested in in the role of the U.S. in in the coup and in the dictatorship and all. And we also the U.S. also had a role in in taking Pinochet out of power because he was already he was untenable at the time in the late 80s. But I would I would just expect more that you you could trust more on our local uh, dominant class and bourgeoisie that we can also make our own coup. <laughs> <laughs> um, because they do. I mean, the 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 main the main creators of the coup was not was not Kiss, Kissinger. They they joined the local forces to. Of course, they had a direct interest in that. But those uh, jokes and not jokes aside, I think that the natural resources are right now the main issue in Chile. I would say and beyond the most immediate concerns. I think the natural resources. Lithium, lithium, especially lithium, yes. right? Which was and, just nationalized, and right? that's why that's why we signed the treaty, the TPP treaty, and Boric also signed like a new agreement with the European Union, and both are very interested in having access to lithium. And we recently had a very nice visit of a general from the South Command of the U.S. Army, and she was very interested in talking about the lithium. Because that's an strategic, it's not just about uh, economic competition. It's about the national security of the U.S. But I, can, I, think we, I think we need a, at least a one minute parenthesis here, because I know uh, that our, there's probably a lot of people in our audience uh, who are very sensitive to the issue of, of what the U.S. involvement is. And of course, U.S. involvement in Chile during Allende and the Pinochet period was significant. 
my impression, and again, Pablo, I concede this to you, my impression is that Chile is not very high on the list of U.S. Uh, foreign policy priorities right now. Do we have any notion at all? Do we have any notion at all what the attitude of the uh, Biden administration is mm-hmm. toward uh, the Boric administration? <laughs> Do they care very much? Does it matter to them very much either way at this point? Well, Chile has always been a very good ally of the United States. And because they see Chile as a more, I would say, modern and Western and different from the other countries in Latin America that, that they see as more as the jungle, you know? And yeah. <laughs> I think that Boric has also been, been very friendly with Biden. He has invited Zelensky to speak <laughs> to the parliament. And so there's sort of like a, always like some sort of good relationship with the U.S. Boric is not one of those progressive presidents that is going to start talking about new currency trade and all that. So I would say that there's no break with previous ways to relate to the United States. That's a that's a very permanent feature of Chilean politics. I, I just wanted to say parenthetically also that again, because I know that we have lots of progressives in our audience and who are finally attuned to this. I just wanted to find an excuse and I just found one. I just wanted to find an excuse to just say in passing that I was pleased in terms of the person of Boric as president. I was pleased to see that he has uh, transcended, if you will, kind of the Cold War model of Mm -hmm. left-wing leaders that was mm, perhaps necessary or unnecessary, but was definitely part of the Cold War where in order to be uh, a Chilean socialist, you had to spend most of your time talking about U.S. imperialism, uh, which is real. Uh, But then you had to spend a lot of time talking about how much you love Daniel Ortega, Nicaragua, and Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. And I give Boric credit for being in the solid Chilean, uh, what would I say, democratic socialist tradition being absolutely firm on the need for democracy, whatever his other failings might be or whatever his other weaknesses are. He's not pandering to dictators like Ortega, which somebody else in his position might and could. Susie? Yeah, I have a, I mean, there's another question from the audience and I think a a couple more, but I just wanted to make or, or maybe ask Pablo, and both of you, actually, you know, when I was listening to uh, the lithium question, which is clearly very important for the way that we move forward with all of our devices, we're going to need the batteries. And once again, Chile's in the forefront, just as it had been more than 100 years ago with nitrates, right, and mining. And so it's sort of, think historically, and it just brings us back full circle. But, you know, that's just a comment. But it kind of ties into Greg Jack's question and it's, it's for you, Mark, but it's also, I think, should go out to Pablo, too, is about the cultural differences as well as the political di- uh, differences. Um, how did you find Chile? And that goes back also to my question about whether or not you were surprised. Of course, I was, of course I, was, I was in Chile long before Pablo was born. So, uh, 
I already kind of said it, so I'll be very brief and I'll, I'll let Pablo talk about how he's feeling now. Uh, you know, he, he talked about the cross currents of optimism and pessimism and ups and downs and not sure which way Chile is going. Chile, to me, in 2023 compared to 1973, was completely the same and completely different. <laughs> uh, there were, of course, it has an indigenous culture. It has a, a unique Chilean culture that is real, that exists, that continues, fortunately. And when you're in Chile, you know you're in Chile for a whole number of reasons that are very Chilean. But... There's no question that in the last 50 years, to me, the biggest, and this might just be my own bias and maybe uh, nearsighted on this, but to me, the most the striking difference in 50 years has been the flowering of consumer capitalism, which in the United States is, let's say in the United States to pick a, a date is maybe uh, 125, 150 years old in terms of brash consumer capitalism. In Chile, that's only maybe 25 years old or, or 30 years old at the most. Chile does not have long experience with, you know, what do you do with disposable income? What do you do? How do you manage your household where all of a sudden you can go buy a colored television on quotas, on installments, right? So to me, uh, the biggest change in Chile was the way that individualism and acquisition of private property, which we all do. I'm not criticizing people for that. I'm just saying it's so new in Chile that it seems to take up too much space, is my view, that there's too much of uh, individualism compared. It, there's much less than there is here in the United States, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but there's much more individualism and disregard, if you will, for the greater good than there was 50 years ago. That's my impression. I don't know, Pablo, you're not even 50 years old, but do you, do, you, do you think that's a tendency that has grown during your lifetime, or is that just my bias as an old hippie? And I want to add before you answer that, <laughs> Pablo, that one of the big attractions of Chile to the international audience, the international left, it was a touchstone, really, because here was, you know, Salvador Allende proclaiming the Chilean road to, uh, to socialism through the democratic process at the ballot box with red wine and empanadas. And it was so attractive when it happened then. And then, of course, everything that followed was not attractive. You know, it takes us sort of back to the cultural differences and the what Mark was talking about, the strong, almost inevitable change in people's consciousness with the, you know, with the, let's call it installment buying and neoliberalism and consumerism that, you know, really did a number on Chile. And I was just reminded that when I went there in 1995, my brother-in-law said, oh, it's too bad that you're here right now because before we were all about solidarity and now we're all about individual individuality. And of course, it sounds better in Spanish, no, but it was... You know, this was before. It was even like the precursor of what happened after that. But I think that kind of sums up. 
Pablo, let's get your take on that. Yeah, well, people <laughs> in Chile and, and elsewhere tend to refer to, to the neoliberal system in Chile as the, the Chilean miracle, right? And the thing is that there was a Chilean miracle, but for some. And then for the rest, it was just hell. And because it's in the short term, in the short, you have, of course, access to more devices and stuff in general, but that's through debt and through credit. And that means that in the long run, you're going towards poverty in any moment. You know, this is what happened, I think, in probably since 2011, that we saw that young people who were born after the dictatorship and who were seeing they had access to education and technology and and other stuff that it was not for free, you know? And so we have low wages and we pay for everything. And so, of course, people are individualistic, but it's not, it's not because they're evil. It's because it's a necessity. It's a society that's organized around solving your own problems individually or on a family level. And so, yeah. I mean, you can expect people to behave like that. But then you, when you have a crisis, like even during the revolt and in the first, in the early days of the pandemic, you have people being very generous and you saw how community came again very naturally to people. So it's not that community and solidarity are dead in Chile. It's that they are being permanently oppressed. And that's why, that's why it's interesting to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the coup, not just by commemorating the atrocities of the dictatorship, but also the utopia of and the revolutionary ideas and the radical project of the popular unity. That's what we're actually commemorating. And that's why the right wing and the center and even some sectors of the center left oppose remembering that project is because it brings memories of another life that it's possible. We're just about out of time, Pablo, but I wanted to thank both of you and to thank all the listeners for your participation. But also, this has just been a wonderful conversation, and I'm really thrilled to have been a part of it. But I want to ask all of you to go to Truth Dig and thank Truth Dig for starting the real dig, which we could call it so an archaeological exploration and even using the word curate for Mark, because if, if you go to truthdig.com, you'll find not just all of the articles that have been put together under the title Utopia Postponed, question mark, but also a timeline. Uh, there's a photo essay and there's so much more. So I want to thank all of you for joining us today, especially you, Mark Cooper, and you, Pablo Abifom, and to all the listeners who've taken all of this time today. And thank keep, you. Keep curating. Thanks, Thank you. thank you, Susie. And thank you so much, Pablo, for joining yeah, us. Thanks, it's been Mark, great. Thank you. It was great. great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs> <laughs>